morning. Thank you very much for joining this conversation with Fei-Fei Li and with me. Uh, we're going to have a wonderful time discussing uh, AI and its implications. Uh, we are doing this from the perspective of Stanford faculty members who find ourselves uh, at a place that's always at the intersection of innovation and an effort to think about how to make humankind uh, better. Uh, Fei-Fei and I are going to have a bit of a conversation. Let me just first say that um, for those of you who, who don't know, I've been a professor at Stanford for a very long time. I've been a professor at Stanford since 1981. And uh, don't start counting. Uh, it just tells you that um, actually I was hired at Stanford at the age of 11. Um, Fei-Fei Li is uh, a professor in computer science. Uh, I'm about to become the director of the Hoover Institution. And uh, she is, of course, the co-director of, of HI, uh, which is trying to bring together the lessons of AI and human interaction. So Fei-Fei, thank you very much for joining me this morning. And I thought we would start by a little bit about our personal stories. Um, I'm gonna make mine very, very quick. Um, I was a failed piano major who fortunately found international politics instead, decided, decided to study Russia um, and uh, never asked the question you know, why a nice girl from Birmingham, Alabama ought to want to understand uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, but it's, uh, it's worked out very well for me and I'm very grateful that my American story allowed me to uh, take on something that I was passionate about and ultimately to become a professor here at Stanford. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your American story? Sure, Condi. What a great honor and pl pleasure to have this opportunity to have a conversation with you about AI, America's innovation, especially at this such extraordinary time. So my American story began at age 15 as a young kid, I came to this country with my parents who uh, gave up everything for the land of opportunity. Um, we landed in a small town called Persephone, New Jersey, of all places. And we're a very typical immigration family. Um, during the day, I was in the public high school, Persephone High School, on the breaks and summer vacations. I was working as a cleaning girl, Chinese restaurants. Um, I remember the other day I was listening to Dr. Thomas Sowell of uh, Hoover, who talked about being a high school dropout and work very hard with wages, barely above minimum wage. In hindsight, I realized I was working under minimum wage for a long time, but I was oblivious to that fact and very grateful that I had an opportunity to work really hard. So um, Persephone High School was where I attended almost four years of high school and it was really formative to my, um, you know, the beginning of my American story. I was obviously a good uh, math and science student, um, had a wonderful math teacher, Bob Sabella, who supported me. I became friends to all three generations of his family till today. But Condi, there's something you might not know that we share. Um, I actually, my favorite classes in high school were American history classes <laughs> that I took two years, junior year and senior year, especially a wonderful teacher from uh, West Point. I and mean, he was a West Point grad. And I was just 
in awe and so inspired, especially by learning about American Constitution, um, the values of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the separation of power and checks and balances, and the establishment of an entirely new political system based on the rule of law and aspire to protect individual citizens' liberty and equality, those values still uh, stayed with me till today. And then very luckily, I got into Princeton on a very generous scholarship. And um, I thought I was following Einstein's uh, footstep as a new American to Princeton. Of course, there is a big bit of a gap between me and Albert Einstein. And, uh, and then I had a um, dual life during the week and day. I, I was studying physics at Princeton and during the weekends, I ran a dry cleaner shop uh, in Persephone, New Jersey, because my parents, especially my mom's health was deteriorating fast. And in order to survive, I borrowed money, especially from my high school math teacher's family and opened this little dry cleaner shop. And uh, so I would employ my parents and I was CEO, CFO, see everything O, and I ran that uh, dry cleaner shop for seven years between undergrad time and, and half of my grad school at Caltech. And, uh, and I was, and, and, you know, somewhere between college and grad school, I was really inspired by the science I was studying. I love the dual study of human neuroscience as well as AI. At that time it wasn't called AI, but, um, computer vision, machine learning. So I made the decision to become a um, professor fairly early um, at the end of college. And I was first hired as a faculty out of uh, grad school at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and then went back to Princeton for a couple of years as faculty. And then uh, I also feel I've been in Stanford for a long time since 2009 and have been living here happily ever after with my family taking care of my aging parents. So that's my quick sketch of my American journey. <laughs> that's a wonderful American story. You know, America stories, there are 300 million of them. And I think we have to realize it's such a wonderful patchwork. But I want to start by saying you, you said you were, you were very much uh, attracted to what we now talk about AI. Well, I have to tell you that for the layperson, sometimes uh, there's a little bit, uh, there are two reactions. First of all, I'm not sure I know what it is. <laughs> and secondly, I'm not sure if I like what I hear about it because <laughs> it, uh, there's a, there, there's kind of science fiction uh, mentality about it. Are we going to see machines taking over for human beings? Uh, as a musician, um, I've sometimes been offended by the fact that people say, well, there are, there are AI algorithms that are composing as well as Beethoven. So can you talk <laughs> a little bit about uh, how we should understand AI and uh, then what are some of its benefits? Yeah, no, Kandi, this is important. And I'm here to have this conversation with you because I want to talk about AI and help to uh, bridge that dialogue. And uh, 
you know, I, I, I joke with my friends, AI is like Hamlet, you know, a thousand people have a thousand Hamlet, and AI, a million people have a million AI definition. But roughly speaking, just put it in simple terms, AI is a modern computer science technology based on computers and mathematics that enable computing machines, again, computers to learn from data, sometimes lots of data, and make very smart or capable inferences based on the patterns we see in this data. And sometimes the patterns we learn from these smart computer programs will help to make um, very smart predictions. The fact is AI is already everywhere in our life. It's still a very nascent technology, but we're using it. For example, we write checks and we deposit them to banks. A bulk of Americans' banking system is using automatic computer vision reading um, programs, software, software programs to read the uh, checks we write. And that is a piece of AI. Or, you know, these days, I don't know about you, but I do shopping on, on Amazon and online shopping all, all the time. I was just ordering some soaps um, yesterday and uh, getting all these recommendations as, as soon as I type hand soap. And that algorithm that's giving us the, the, the recommendation is a piece of AI or technically we call it a piece of machine learning. The other, the, the other thing is um, already happening in our cars. If you buy a new-ish car recently, you get a lot of these software that's helping you to stay in line right, to, to alert you if there's um, someone behind your car. And these are, again, our AI algorith algorithms at work. So it's nascent, but it's coming in our lives, coming in our work. And I want to bust two myths that I think is really important, especially as an AI technology. One myth is why you said it's taking over, it's omnipotent. I think it is, we need to recognize it can be powerful, especially in um, areas that uh, machines are, can, can do well, like recommending millions of products. I think it's hard for any human to do, um, but it's not uh, omnipotent. It's still, um, um, you know, it's solving certain problems one at a time. And uh, we need to be careful when we hear these hyperbolic um, uh, descriptions of this technology, we, we want to know specifically what each application does, but uh, this, the sense of taking over um, is, um, you know, we have to be, uh, be careful, um, not going too far. And we'll talk a little bit about what does that mean to jobs and, and, and so on. Another myth I want to bust, and I think it's really important for me as an educator, is that AI is only for a small group of people, especially those hackers who had a computer since age five. And that is not true. It's true as a technology in the development uh, phase, we get computer scientists and software engineers to, to develop this. But AI is such a horizontal technology. It takes everybody's participation. Um, artists have a role to play. Policymakers have a role. Economists have a role. You know, lawyers, um, teachers, doctors, 
And I hope that throughout this conversation, um, I'll help to give some examples of what are the different aspects of AI that call for everybody's participation. Well, I, I gather that's one reason that uh, there's the human in, uh, in high. Um, and uh, can you talk a little bit about the inspiration to, to start the Institute and to, uh, to try to leverage uh, Stanford's great uh, knowledge and great innovation uh, in this area in computer science with all of the other things that we have and that we, we study and do here at the university? Yeah, um, in fact, this is a, this is a really uh, interesting. Is Hoover the oldest institute of Stanford? Well, it probably is. It's, uh, it goes back <laughs> to Herbert Hoover. <laughs> right, so I think, hi, the Human Center AI Institute is the youngest yeah. institute. So it's uh, quite uh, interesting and an uh, honor to have this conversation. So HAI, hi, which Condi, thank you for being uh, one of the advisors of us um, is uh, was founded last year in the spring, and and oh boy, how the world has changed in just one year! Um, it was really founded um, by this urgent sense of responsibility and opportunity. We're at a historical moment that AI and technology are transforming our lives and work and community and society, and it will be more and more so. But there are some pressing issues to grapple with. You said the magical word, it's the human pressing issues from individual rights, well-being, to community well-being, to economy at large, to labor market at large, to ethics of every aspect of this. And uh, it's not enough for just computer science department, which is the background behind me, <laughs> to tackle this. We need a new approach, multidisciplinary, multi-stakeholder approach to really um, get to the bottom and to stay ahead of this technology. And that's what uh, Human Center AI Institute is about. Um, you know, it also stemmed from my personal background of being a, um, a neuroscientist as well as an AI um, a computer scientist. I see that uh, interplay between humans and technology comes into um, all aspects of the science itself as well as the technology. So we focus on three things at uh, HAI at high. Uh, one is um, guiding and forecasting and studying the human and societal impact of AI. Here we collaborate with colleagues at Hoover, at uh, the School of Business, at School of Law, Education, Medicine, so many different aspects and nuance about the policy and, and the, uh, the way, the, the guardrails of ethics and so on. The second focus area is designing and creating AI applications that augment human capabilities. And this is a strong belief AI or any technology here uh, is not here to replace people with, um, uh, with its goal, it's really to empower people. Of course, technology can take people out of harm's way, think about rescuing work, or do some work that humans are not good at doing in order to help people. 
But the bottom line is how do we enhance, how do we augment, and how do we empower? And here our researchers are working with doctors, teachers, uh, educators, clinical researchers, and, um, you know, and other uh, aspects of this technology. Last but not the least, um, Stanford has prided itself in basic science research. We recognize AI is still so nascent. In order to help humans better, we need to understand humans. We need to understand brain. We need to understand human psychology. So we are also focusing on the multidisciplinary uh, research work between brain science, cognitive science, and uh, the deep machine learning um, research. So these are the three aspects of uh, AI, uh, HAI's uh, focus in our education, research, and outreach. Well, it's such an exciting uh, prospect because uh, Stanford has very low barriers to uh, cooperation between the disciplines. It, it helps that we're all on the same campus. So uh, computer science, and you can walk right down to Hoover, you could walk yep. over to uh, the to CEPR, the uh, economics uh, center, or you could go to the medical school, not very far away, or other parts of engineering. So we have this chance for interdisciplinary work. But I want to ask you uh, about the the ethics piece of it because mm -hmm. um, I study uh, international politics, and I've always said that human beings are sometimes better at the knowledge part than at the wisdom part. So the example that I often give is that the same technology that allowed us to split the atoms so that we could use civil nuclear power to turn on lights or to do medical isotopes also gave us the atom bomb. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes technologies go awry and they actually uh, cause enormous ethical problems. And I think one of the concerns that people have is if you think about in healthcare, will AI be used uh, to uh, discriminate, for instance, mm -hmm. against people who are predicted uh, through machine learning to have certain kinds of diseases? Will insurance companies be able to use it? You've heard all of these arguments. So one of the things that really has impressed me is that there's a strong uh, desire to have people look at the ethics of AI. Uh, within uh, the Human-Centered AI Institute. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I cannot agree more with you, Kandi, especially as a physics student. I totally know what you're saying from the atomic physics all the way to, you know, um, also bombs. So um, I think I, this is a topic dear to my heart. I, at the end of the day, I strongly believe technology is a double-edged sword. Um, since the dawn of our civilization, humanity has been out innovating ourselves every step of the way with the hope of making lives better, making work better. But any time a technology is invented, um, it can be used in good ways and in, in, in adversarial ways. And the most important thing is, as a society, how do we put in the guardrails and how do we collectively um, well, we have individual responsibilities when it comes to ethics. We have professional responsibilities with ethics, but we also have a societal ethical uh, responsibility. I do want to talk about this, especially in healthcare, since it's dear to my heart, um, in this du dual um, dimension, right? Well, I haven't talked about the, the benefits. 
In fact, um, there's a lot of benefits even in healthcare. Um, just look at the pandemic we're going through as a piece of data-driven technology. Machine learning can help our doctors to do the advanced epidemiological um, analysis can help to discover drugs, sometimes can help to uncover old drugs for new purposes. These are uh, tremendous usage of this technology. I personally work with clinicians in using AI to augment their healthcare delivery to take, um, to help uh, clinician fatigue, to help them to um, uh, watch patients who need continuous monitoring for their safety, but we don't have enough clinicians um, to, to do that, especially when a hospital is, uh, is overloaded or cl clinical system is overloaded at a crisis time like this. And even at the government level, the benefits um, in, in AI you know, um, uh, you, you, you mentioned uh, examples by, of insurance. Our um, governments are already using hundreds of uh, AI applications from FDA's uh, adverse drug event analysis to border control to um, uh, uh, citizenship and urban development uh, chatbot services. All these are great examples of benefits but every one of them need guardrails because like you said, uh, what about the fairness issue? What about the privacy issue? Um, who is to decide um, that the, the, the algorithm is not biased against the group of people? And I think this is where um, HAI's effort in collaboration with everybody comes in. We need that multi-stakeholder approach. I remember, Kandi, you talk about that a lot in, in, your, um, in your area of expertise, that multi-stakeholder conversation, collaboration, um, policy making is so important. And I think this is true for, for AI that uh, ethics is such an important piece. Just a tiny example, my own healthcare research in AI, we not only work with the university administration on human subject protection um, uh, 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 you know, guideline. We actually work with bioethicists, legal scholars, privacy experts in, from the design of our uh, research uh, with the clinicians all the way to the, to the application of the research. And I think um, we need to uh, recognize this is the moment that we bake ethics into the design all the way to the application of AI. And to start, to start at the beginning, so to speak, while it's still nascent as you've been. Yes. Saying. And yeah. it, it sounds very um, much like you're describing ways in which AI can actually assist in the workplace. Um, I think there are probably also ways that AI can assist in education um, and and given the importance of um, the fact that we are an educational institution, um, how do you think about AI and the, the uh, task of educating people for the future? Oh God, this is so dear to my heart. I know it's dear to your heart. We absolutely need to um, um, 
improve, increase the amount of AI education? Because I think that American workforce need uh, computing savvy and AI savvy talents. Uh, there has been reports, multiple national reports. Uh, some of the latest number I read is that computing jobs is the fastest growing jobs of all STEM jobs, all the way going to be into 2024, as far as we can see. Uh, yet, um, there are only, um, there are way more jobs that demand um, computing talents than the uh, students and graduates with those um, with those skills. So America still needs more people with the skills of computing and AI, especially people from all walks of life. This is, um, you know, we need to fill the pipeline with the AI talents that reflect us collectively as a people and, and from all backgrounds, uh, gender, race, uh, social economic background, uh, geo, uh, geographical background, and uh, because this technology is going to impact all of us. And um, personally, um, I know you and I talked about this before. I'm very passionate about um, uh, trying to improve the inclusion and diversity in AI education, not only in college and, and grad school, but also K to 12. So. Uh, Stanford and, uh, graduates and I have co-founded this nonprofit uh, organization called AI for All that is aimed to um, invite high school students uh, across our country from all backgrounds, especially underserved communities, to participate in AI. Just this summer, we have, um, even during this COVID time, we have 16 summer programs all over the country from Texas, El Paso, to Arizona State, to Michigan, and more, to invite hundreds of American high schoolers from um, underrepresented community to study AI. So I think this is a really important um, aspect of education. I think it's very important, and, it, and uh, it's the right thing to do. It's also extremely important from the perspective of uh, the United States, uh, national security, our ability to keep our technological and lead uh, globally. I mean, there are a lot of people who are very concerned that particularly China um, might actually surpass the United States in its ability uh, to innovate. Uh, I happen to think that we have the strongest pillars of innovation. We have great universities, uh, which then are not shy about commercializing uh, the benefits of the knowledge. We have, and I hope we continue, immigration. You mentioned your American story, your parents coming here seeking uh, opportunity, you coming here seeking opportunity. Uh, America's always been able to attract the best and the brightest from around the world because there was a belief that it didn't matter where you came from, it really mattered where you were going. So you could come from humble circumstances and you could do great things. And it seems to me that that's our strongest suit. But let me ask you about one thing that people often say about why uh, we have, will have trouble um, with China as a competitor in this area. They say, well, there's, there's so much data that machine learning needs. And um, in fact, because the Chinese don't have some of the privacy concerns that you talked about, they'll collect all of this data and that will mean that we uh, will be behind. Um, are you confident about 
um, America's ability to, to keep the lead uh, in innovation in areas like this? So, um, uh, first of all, Kandi, I share your confidence about uh, this country being a wonderful um, system for scientific and technological innovation. We have shown that uh, for the past decades, probably, um, at least a, a century, that we are leader in technology and, and science. And it's due to this ecosystem, right? You, you mentioned the ecosystem of our great universities, our industry, our, our federal support system, the nonprofits, and this ecosystem of collaboration. At Stanford, we see that uh, especially true, but I've been in three universities across the country, and that's at least personally, I see that. And uh, um, I think I totally agree we should continue to be a front runner uh, in AI and technology because um, everybody I talk to, every student of mine, every collaborator and, and colleague of mine here believe that we can do so much positive things with this technology. We, can, we, we aspire to create safe and reliable AI. We want to foster inclusive economic growth with this technology. We want to promote transparent and accountable government, uh, governance with this technology. We want to protect civil liberty. We want to empower uh, economic empowerment of our citizens and healthcare system, education system, agriculture system, all this we can do by being a front runner. And uh, we also want to be a front runner so that we can um, better defend against potential bad uses from ethically bad use to other, other bad uses. So when it comes to how to be a front runner of AI and is data the critical uh, point, um, let me be a little bit more nuanced. This technology is very um, complex. Is it, it involves computing technology from hardware to software. It involves mathematics, basic uh, science mathematics. It involves um, uh, it involves data, and uh, um, data is a first class citizen of today's AI research. Uh, we should admit that, but it's not the only, uh, it's not the only thing that define AI. There are technology like speech recognition today or face recognition that's data heavy. And uh, uh, for any, um, any uh, development and application that has plenty of data, I think we should recognize that advantage. But there are many cases, especially looking forward of the use case and development of AI that's not necessarily data heavy. Um, I think a lot about healthcare, for example, rare disease understanding, genetic study of rare disease, drug discovery, um, treatment management. Um, they're by definition not necessarily data heavy, but AI and machine learning can play a huge role. Uh, Human-centered design, right? I think about elder care and that kind of nuanced technological um, help, that is not necessarily data heavy as well. So, so I think we need to be very um, um, thoughtful about how to use data, 
One thing I want to share, Condi, it's very timely because it just happened today, that um, we're promoting, uh, we as Stanford HAI is promoting the building of America's capability in AI through data access and compute access and to democratize um, democratize this uh, technology. So today, HAI has advanced um, in Congress a piece of legislation led by your good friend, uh, Senator uh, Rob um, Portman, uh, with a bipartisan group of uh, legislators on this idea of building a national research cloud that uh, give American researchers access to the tools needed to bring the next generation of AI. And this include data access. Um, and and, and this, is, this is the effort HAI and many collaborators are making to um, tackle this issue. That is just excellent news. And in fact, one of the things that we would like to try to be helpful with at, at Hoover and at other policy institutes is to think about how to make the translation from uh, the needs of research and knowledge and uh, the benefits of it into uh, legislation or government support that might actually help in that regard. And so congratulations on that. We're very excited uh, to yeah, see. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm going to turn now to some questions from uh, our attendees. And uh, there are a number of them that are very interesting. I, I find one that is a, a bit challenging for me to think about, which is, do you think that uh, the future of artificial intelligence will include not just the ability to reason, but somehow to get to emotional acuity? Um, and it goes to this point of how different will the machine uh, always be from the human being? Can you talk a little bit about maybe even philosophically, even if uh, it's not on the research agenda? Yeah, no, this is a great question. Um, so, so from a basic science point of view, especially I come from a cognitive neuroscience background, um, there's always going to be a scientific inquiry of how we can uh, include more emotional intelligence and, and human level of reasoning and creativity into machines. Even at Stanford right now, I have an ongoing collaboration with a, a group of neuroscientists on uh, uh, human baby, learning from human baby development and AI and, and, and uh, uh, develop algorithms that mimics human baby's curiosity and, uh, and the theory of mind um, elements into machine learning. So that's the basic science inquiry. But I think um, there's a, also a layer of this question is that how likely is this going to be like humans and, and feel like humans and, and think like humans? I think this is an open question. Humanity is always out inventing, innovating ourselves. So, so I'm curious to see. But again, this might be a little scary for all of us too. So, so at the end of the day, we need to stay ahead of the ethical human implication of these science, right? I, I like to share with my students, there's no independent machine values. Machine values are human values. So a scientific inquiry like this is simultaneously very interesting, but it's also impactful and we need to 
building that guardrail and, and, and ethics concern from the, the, the beginning. Well, one of the places that we know there's going to be an impact, and we talked a little about this, but there are several questions about that are more specific to how do you see AI impacting work, uh, the future of work. Uh, you said that there will be some tasks that human beings are not as good as, at doing as machines, uh, but there are obviously there has to be some machine human mix for human beings to continue to work. So can you talk some about that? Yeah, um, Connie, I think um, we all see, and, and you know as much as I do, more than I do, that humanity as a society, we have been changing constantly over the past thousands of years, at least recorded history, because of our technology and, and, and the way productivity changes. So it's not even a question, AI is gonna impact of human of work. In fact, I served on California Governor um, um, uh, Newsom's uh, uh, Future of Work Commission in the, in the past one year, and there's a lot of discussions about this. Um, I, I, I think that um, one of the most important thing is to recognize the different aspect of this work, the, the employment, and labor aspect, I, HAI again, high, in, you know, is have researchers and, and invite collaborators to really uh, begin that kind of research is so important. We understand the implication, the policies to help people, and um, you know, reskilling is part of it. Education is is part of it. It's going to be an interdisciplinary approach. Personally, I agree with you. I believe so much about that human-machine collaboration. Again, through my healthcare research uh, experience, you know, I've been in hospital for both personal reasons to take care of my mother as well as my research. The more I work with doctors and as a family member, the more I believe a lot of work is about humans to humans. Healthcare is humans caring for humans. I would give doctors every tool I could to possi positively impact their work, to positively impact patients' uh, recovery and treatment uh, through the, 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 the uh, advances of technology, as long as we stay focused to the mission of taking care of people. And I, I think that these are the kind of interdisciplinary dialogues and research that need to happen. And, uh, and we still want the doctor to be there with us. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> and the nurses, the, the healthcare workers, they're so important. In fact, um, since healthcare has been one of your uh, areas of, of interest, I, I do want to raise this question that has come up about how, uh, you mentioned how it can improve the doctor's ability to care for the patient. This question is really how can we also use it to improve uh, the in unequal outcomes that we're getting in healthcare. We've, we've seen with COVID-19 that there are certain populations uh, that are being hit much harder by this virus and it has to do with unequal health, the basis of health being unequal. So how do we think about uh, AI and, and inequality in healthcare? Can, can it help there? Yeah, um, and Kandi, I think that's an important question. Equality, fairness is an important question in healthcare as well as everywhere. And AI, 
again, speaking to the double-edged sword of a technology, I see AI both potentially being part of the problem or part of the solution. Of course, our goal is to make it part of the solution. Why is it part of the problem? Because we can develop biased algorithm. We can use the algorithm, whether it's biased or not, in a biased human way. We can, if we're not careful, we exacerbate the problem. You know, it's very uh, well known that if uh, data, training data is biased, if we train, uh, say, skin disease um, data with the particular type of skin color, it, it's not gonna, the, the piece of software we develop is not gonna be fair or equal to people with a different kind of skin color. This is a very shallow example of inequality that AI can introduce. And then access to healthcare, even though AI is not um, the technology to, to, to enable people to access healthcare, but um, it's part of it. You know, um, I speak with an accent. Sometimes I'm terrified to speak with a chatbot, customer service chatbot. And, uh, and um, in healthcare, this might be very important for a lot of patients who need help. And how do we mitigate that? But it, it can also be part of the solution to start with. AI has ability to call out bias. I've seen work in our AI community where AI call out policing bias by analyzing um, conversations from body cams. I've seen AI calling out Hollywood's bias by showing that there is more screen time for male actors than female actors. And um, calling out would be the first step that AI can participate to be part of the solution. And then AI can also help to mitigate bias um, um, if we do the algorithm right and provide human clinicians or, or, or um, uh, doctors with the more fair information that mitigates human bias. For example, I'll give you an example that in COVID, everybody cares about is hand washing. It turned out Hospital acquired infection is really, really a big issue uh, uh, in, in hospital infection. And we want clinicians to wash their hands, but it's very hard to remind clinicians to wash hands. What do you do? You put a human monitor at the door of each patient room, even if that's feasible and not too expensive, there's human bias, right? What if my friends walked in? What if my boss walked in? Do I remind them? Here, we are actually literally working with Utah's Intermountain Hospital and Stanford's Children's Hospital to create an AI technology, smart sensor technology that can call out these kind of uh, hand-washing behavior without the bias that human might introduce. So we want AI to be part of solution. That's fantastic. Well, we've, we've come almost to the end of our time. Um, there is one, one question here that I'm just going to use to sum up how I feel, and it says, uh, how can a person 15 years out of college with a liberal arts degree train for, uh, for a career in AI? I think that means that you've stimulated those of us who didn't train in AI to try to be a part of the conversation uh, on AI. And indeed, um, I, I think that one of the things that, um, that HI will do, the Human Centered AI Institute will do, is it will involve the entire campus and hopefully our entire student body 
in understanding, as you said, that this is a multi-stakeholder uh, set of issues that the technology left to its own devices might not give us the benefits that we want. But if we can bring the whole of human knowledge uh, to bear on how we use this very powerful technology, uh, maybe we can uh, help humans move forward. So thank you very much, uh, Fefe, for a wonderful thank you. conversation, for demystifying uh, <laughs> for us and uh, for stimulating people to want to know more. So thank, thank you. Thank you, Gandhi. Yeah, it's an honor and I, I love to continue having this conversation. America's strength is our people and uh, the more people participate in this technology to guide it, to develop it, the, the stronger we are. Absolutely. I very much uh, look forward to those further conversations. Thank you. Have a good day. You too.